I am Connor McCloud of the Clan McCloud, and I am immortal. Here we are. a dead guy named Nash. You talk funny, Nash. Where are you from? Lots of different places. I am Juan Sanchez Villalobos Ramius, chief metallurgist to King Charles V of Spain. Everybody's got their problems. You're alive. Why didn't you die? Hey, it's a kind of magic. Hi, I'm Candy. Of course you are. Hello and welcome to Another Time McLeod, the only podcast to our knowledge dedicated to breaking down the 1986 cult classic Highlander, scene by scene. I'm your host, Rob Wallace, and as always, I'm joined by McKinsman, Mr. Rob Daniel. And as always, it is a pleasure to be here. And today, we have a very special guest, uh, John Melville, author of A Kind of Magic, making the original Highlander. Well, um, welcome to Another Time McLeod. Hello, thanks for, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Um, yeah, I guess before uh, before we start, can you um, can you tell us a bit about yourself? Yeah, I am a well, mainly a film journalist based in Edinburgh, in Scotland, uh, and I've been writing about films since about two thousand and eight, maybe a little bit earlier than that. But uh, but I've been a fan of Highlander since nineteen ninety four. So really, I've been um, uh, in this world of of Highlander in one way or, or another. For quite a while, um, and uh, and it was a few years ago, maybe about twenty, oh, maybe fifteen or sixteen, that I decided to finally try and write a book about Highlander, just the first film, really. Uh, and yeah, and here I am. You've read the book; it all worked out nicely. But we can talk about that over the next little while. Yeah, great. Um, I guess yeah, when you uh, when you started writing the book or when you first pitched the book, how responsive were publishers to the idea? Um, so just to go back a little bit without boring you with all the details I did I wrote my first book uh, well I started that in about 2013 and that was on the the Tremors movies the Kevin Bacon film and, and the various sequels and uh, and I ended up self-publishing that book through uh, mainly through Amazon um, just because it was such a niche film niche you know niche films that I wasn't sure if anyone would want to publish that that book so I just did it myself so when it came to, to doing Highlander, I actually had the same idea. I thought the first one worked out fine. People bought it. Why don't I just do it myself? Um, and then, I mean, I could go on at length. It's not the most exciting story, but a publisher um, did get in touch with me and actually offered to, to publish it. But the deal wasn't very good, so I, I didn't go with that and ended up with my current publisher. So that's, that's the not very exciting story, I suppose, about how it came to be. Uh, but... Um, but yeah, the publisher I went with is based here in Edinburgh, and there's a very a very small publisher, mainly specialising in in sports books, rugby, and things like that, but also with an interest in films. So, so it worked out well. And is that is that Polaris? That's the one. Yes. Um, Incidentally, I believe uh, one of our recent guests, Scott Varnum, actually uh, reviewed your book for Starburst. That's right. Yes, he was very supportive of the book before I think it came out. And then when it came out as well, so yeah, Scott's um, Scott's a great guy. So if he's um, if he's listening, hello Scott, thank you. <laughs> um, so just to go back to '94, so could you tell us about the first time that you saw Highlander, and yeah, what were the thoughts that you had back then? Yeah, well, the first time I saw it was I mean I'd heard of the film. I think in '94 I was 18. Um, so I would have seen it when I was 18 and I'd just started university here in Edinburgh and I'd heard of the film but but before that as I, as I mentioned in the book uh, I was living up actually in the Highlands bizarrely I, I was born in Edinburgh but moved up to a place called Galsby uh, when I was 10 and then came back down again but in Galsby there were no cinemas and the nearest one was in Venice uh, and so when the film came out on video um, I don't even think the the local the corner shop had it uh, in in stock. So, um, so yeah, it took me until I was about eighteen to actually see it. And here in Edinburgh, we've got an incredible cinema called the Cameo, which has been running for for a very long time, many many years. I don't know, eighteen, maybe ninety years. Uh, and at that point, they were running midnight screenings of, of films and double bills. So I just remember going along with a friend. I think the, the midnight or these late night screenings actually probably started about 11pm, but they were doing a screening of The Crow and Highlander. 
And the crow at that point, I think it came out actually in 94 or maybe 93. So it was really brand new, I suppose. And of course, Highlander has a, a similar theme to it anyway of, of immortality or or at least someone who's died and, and come back to life. Spoilers if you've not seen The Crow. Um, so yeah, for me, both films were actually new to me, but it was Highlander that really, I suppose, made more of an impression on me. And um, and I guess it was something to do with the fact that it was, some of it was filmed in Scotland and, and it was set in Scotland. And, and funnily enough, today I've just been writing for, for my next book about, about Scottish film. I'm trying to say, you know, what is a Scottish film and, and do we have a film industry and have we ever had a film industry here? Uh, and and uh, and so that is the kind of, um, I don't know, the existential question, I suppose, that comes up as a Scottish film fan when you're watching a film made here. You're thinking, well, OK, it's made here, some of it, but it's not funded by anyone in Scotland. So is it a Scottish film? But we don't have that many. So let's just take it as a Scottish film and it's one of ours so there's that kind of all those things I suppose were going on in my head and <laughs> and have been ever since thinking is that a Scottish film no it's not but it sort of is um so uh, it means a lot to people in Scotland I think we can look at it and we're, we're, we kind of can laugh at it and we can see the the faults but at the same time we think well Sean Connery's in it so it counts <laughs> and it's a really good um advert for the beauty of Scotland as well I mean you know without that location filming I don't think the film would be as strong totally no absolutely and and I can remember um I don't think I fully answered your first question really but you were asking I think what I thought of it at the time and I can remember watching in the first what five five or ten minutes that that bit where he's in the um, car park and the camera of course moves up through the, the, the ceiling of the car park and, and comes to Scotland and to Elandonan Castle. And I can remember that at the time just being blown away by that transition and all the transitions and all those flashbacks. And yes, Scotland looks incredible in it, doesn't it? And and um it's one of the, the best looking films. I think best you know, one of the films that's made Scotland look look at its best really. Um so yeah, so no it's it's certainly I think a good probably help for to, you know, with tourism and uh, and getting a few people coming over here to see London and Castle and um, various parts of Sky and, 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 and the Highlands. So, yeah, stunning looking film. Yeah. You see, I, I love in the book how you talk about, especially with that particular transition, the uh, the digging of the trench so they can get, you know, so they can rise up through the earth and get that shot. The, just you're talking about the uh, the filmmaking process, so, you know, Russell Mulcahy um, coming in with, you know, an, a, an abundance of ideas and seemingly limitless energy and bringing that just that visual panache to the film is yeah it's um incredibly it's really quite remarkable well yeah no, i'm just gonna say yes um i think we're, we're so lucky and i did try and go into detail a little bit about that and his what he was bringing to this film you know that music video style which was sort of clashing a bit with the old school british film industry uh you know these these old guys at jerry fisher the cinematographer who was coming to this from from lots of older films and and he was this young whippersnapper and Russell Mulcahy who had been working with Duran Duran and uh, Elton John and uh, and I can only imagine what it must have been like on set you know these two styles just just going head to head yeah so um you you quote um I think it's the Variety review in the book where it says Russell Mulcahy couldn't decide if he was making a sci-fi a thriller a horror a music video or a romance and I'd argue that's part of the charm that's part of what makes it great Oh, totally. Absolutely. Yeah, it's a funny thing. I mentioned the Tremors book earlier, uh, and there's something about that as well. I mean, Tremors, for anyone that's seen it, uh, which of course is most people, I'm sure, but it is a, it's a sci-fi, western, horror, comedy, romance. Um, I don't know, you could probably throw something else in as well. And um, for some reason, there's just something about these films that I've I, of course it wasn't that I thought I, I want to only write about films that have multiple genres but that has turned out to be the case and and yeah Highlander is is as you say very much what is it is it a romance is it a comedy it's obviously not a comedy but there are lot, lots of humor in there haggis what is haggis <laughs> uh is it a sci-fi is it a fantasy is it a sword and sword and sort of sandals type um you know epic is it a time travel film I don't know it's just everything and it shouldn't, it really shouldn't work. And I, I think I say this in the book, and I said it to Russell Mackay, it shouldn't work, but it does. Uh, I think it does anyway, it just about does. <laughs> I think it's one of those things though, I mean, I'm surprised that he didn't say, 
it's all of the above. Mm. That's what I wanted to make, all of the above. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. In one movie. <laughs> totally. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, crazy, crazy that they went into this with all these different styles, but, but luckily they did, yeah. Yeah. One of the things I loved about the book was that you just got in touch with everyone and from like yeah. um, Christopher Lambert to the guy that was brought on to just be like a background artist who ended up doubling for Christopher Lambert sometimes. Mm. Um, so how did you go about just accumulating all those different people to interview? Yeah, well, um, how did I do that? I suppose there is a, a so we all know IMDb. Um, there's also, I don't know, not everyone will have noticed, but when you go onto IMDb, it talks about IMDb Pro, which is a paid for version of IMDb. Hmm. Uh, and for about £12, I think you can access the contact details of lots of different people. You can go in there and see who the agent is for, or the manager of Russell Mackay or Christopher Lambert or uh, Clancy Brown, all these different people. And so really it was just a case of, of going through them one by one. And, um, uh, approaching them so before I think it was in it, it was the start of what was it 2016 I think I started emailing the main guys like Russell and Christopher and Clancy and Sean Connery just to see if they would get back to me and most of them didn't and then I was very lucky in that here in Edinburgh we've got the film festival international film festival and in 2016 it was the 30th anniversary of Highlander and Clancy Brown came to Edinburgh. So just amazingly timing worked out for me and I got an interview with him. And uh, and I shouldn't really have got that. I've said that before, but uh, Clancy Brown sort of distanced himself from Highlander quite a bit over the decades. And um, I always, I just didn't think I would get that interview. So the fact that he turned up on my doorstep almost, uh, I was just very, very lucky. So um, did that interview here in Edinburgh and then because of that, I think I could email other people and say, oh, I've got Clancy Brown. Do you want to speak to me? And other people said yes. And it was just that sort of snowball effect, really. Um, and some people I was approaching via Twitter. Some people it was on Facebook. Some people, I don't know, just Googling and trying to find people's email addresses, stalking people, basically. But it was a long process, long, long process. It took me a few years in total, hmm. but, but it was worth it, I think, in the end. <laughs> oh, definitely, and um, and there's a there's a great clip I think of your of your interview with Clancy Brown at the Edinburgh Film Festival on uh, on YouTube. I actually think they might I can't remember whether or not they've cut around your question, but it's uh, no, it's really nice seeing him open up and kind of engage about the film in a in a mostly positive way. Because as you say, you know he's been fairly cagey or at least a little bit I guess circumspect talking about it in uh, over the decades. That's right. Yes, uh, I think with that one actually I was working for a. Um, sort of entertainment website here in Edinburgh at the time. At that point, I didn't know if the book, of course, was going to happen, but I did have it in my head that it was going to. I thought, yeah, this this will happen. So I kind of sneakily, that was kind of my work time, I think. I, I remember cycling along to interview him. And it was a very hot day in June. And uh, and so I, I, I only used some of the interview for that video and I kept some of it for myself because I thought, no, I'm going to use this in my book. <laughs> uh, and then got an interview with him again the next day. So I think in total I had about half an hour's worth of interview and that's all I had really. But um, that's half an hour more than most people, I think. <laughs> and um, yeah, and he was just very, as you say, he was very open for whatever reason he was, well, maybe just because of the amount of time that had passed, he was he was kind of happy to be open and honest about his time on the film. And, and I had maybe five questions, five or six questions I really wanted answered. Um, and so I was kind of specific with him, I suppose, at the time. And um, and it just worked out really well, yeah. And, and I got enough to sort of spread that through the book. And I think it doesn't come across, that's the, that, I suppose that's the trick of these things is to try and make it not look like you've only got half an hour of interview when you're writing 80,000 words. Um, <laughs> But yeah, no, it worked out really well. And he's, he's a really nice guy. Really enjoy speaking to him. I've um I've seen another interview. Clancy Brown now kind of plays down the sort of the quote unquote table incident with him and Sean Connery. Um, from your research, like where do you think the truth lies with that? <laughs> um, well, I think uh, I can't quite remember. See, because it's been yeah. I've read so many interviews and done so many interviews. Sometimes I can't quite remember if it was me that got an interview or if I'm just remembering it from someone else. But 
there is there is something somewhere talking about um i think it's in my book that i talk about the security the safety on set because it was because it was the 80s i guess things were a bit different than they are now with health and safety so i suspect that probably it wasn't as safe as it um as it maybe should have been or, or would be now and so, I mean, I think there are sort of quotes, aren't there, about people almost having their heads, not, maybe not cut off, but having things lodged in the back of their head and, <laughs> and almost killed and things. But, but I think, yeah, I think there are, there's enough out there that suggests Sean Connery certainly was a little bit spooked by it and did go off set and was, was unhappy and was maybe talking to Russell and saying, you know, this is not working after Clancy came through the door and, and I think sent a few things flying. <laughs> So we'll never, I don't suppose we'll ever really know, but I think if you sort of look for something in the middle of all those quotes, you'll probably find it was a bit unsafe. Um, Clancy probably got a little bit carried away and somebody was either injured or very nearly injured. And yeah, things were maybe, people just got a little bit unhappy on the day. But this is the thing, isn't it, with all these things, it was, it was, it was, now I suppose thirty-five plus years ago, yeah. and uh, people just remember things. I, I I just find that all the time that people remember things differently. I mean, there's also a story in there about yeah, maybe you're going to ask this, but there's a there's one where Christopher jumps from the top of the silver cup onto a mat onto a and yes, uh, and punctures it with his sword reportedly. Well, this is it. Yeah, so Christopher says, no, no, that didn't happen. Uh, it, no, I think he says it did. I did jump, but it wasn't damaged. And then two or three other people say, no, it was damaged. And then there's a report that was written on the day that says it, it was. So who do you believe? Hmm. Um, I don't want to say to Chris Lambert that he's wrong, but the sort the evidence kind of suggests he is wrong. But again, it, who knows quite what happened? So I just have to try and you know try and meet somewhere in the middle and say, okay, this is probably what happened, but maybe it didn't. So um, yeah, talking about the passage of time, I know that you um you tried to speak to Sean Connery about the film, but uh, he 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 was in retirement; he wasn't doing interviews at that point. What what would you have liked to have asked him? What would have been kind of the, the you know the core questions? <laughs> well, that's a good question because I didn't ever actually write them down. But I think there would have to be something in there about him coming back to Scotland to film because uh, he never really filmed much here. He did some uh, from Russia with Love. Some of that was filmed here in, uh, in what, the 1960s. And he did, what else did he do? He did a few kind of documentaries. But, but So I think it would have been interesting just to hear from him his approach and his thoughts about not working in Scotland very much. Uh, and also the fact, of course, that he was only on the film for really a sort of a week, a week and a half, maybe two weeks. I think it was about a week and a half in total. That's another thing that was a little bit difficult to pinpoint. How long was he actually on the film and how much did he get paid? Um, but I think I managed to get to the, the, the sort of, um, I think I managed to, to, to find out exactly what it was in the book. Because just finding another old, in there was an interview that I found on a random page on the internet that said this is how much we paid him and this went wrong with the camera and it was something that nobody else had reported so once again just all these different sources but um but no i think it would really have just been about what was it like working in scotland again what was it like working with christopher lambert what sort of friendship did they have um and uh, what did it mean to him after all those years being part of this little film for just short, such a short period of time but he's such a big part of it such a major um, yeah, part of that film. But sadly, I didn't get to. I did meet Sean Connery once, but only in passing. Only I shook his hand once and just didn't get a chance to interview him. So I wish I'd pushed for that when I had the, had the chance. But you just don't know. You just never think, oh, one day I'll be doing a book on Highlander. Or I didn't, anyway. But just, it was very nice. Yeah, I was at an awards ceremony here in, here in Edinburgh again. Um, because the, the, the festival, the film festival, he was a, a patron of that. So every year, every couple of years, he would turn up for things. Um, so I just went and, and said hello to him and, and shook his hand. And he was very polite before the security guys came over. <laughs> um, but yes, that was, it was good. I'm glad I met him. And also, uh, also just bizarre, I don't think I mentioned it in the book, but his brother, uh, Neil, lived in the, in the next street to me for a few years until during COVID, actually, during the, the pandemic, during, the, during lockdown, he sadly, he sadly passed away. And I don't know if it was to do with yeah. COVID. But um, what was he like when he met him? He was a very nice, 
an older gent. He was a, he was a couple of years younger than Sean, uh, and I used to see him just he was going to the shops, or sometimes you'd see him on the bus. And and I don't know if you've seen a photo of him, but he's he just looked exactly like Sean Connery, just a little bit younger. So it was quite bizarre seeing him waiting at the bus stop sometimes. You're like, oh, it's Neil. But he was, he was a lovely guy. I, I've heard a rumour, I don't know how substantiated it is, that um, uh, the producers, uh, Highlanders producers, Panzer and Davies, originally wanted to reach out, or even did reach out to Sean Connery to play Connor, to play the Highlander, which I guess on one hand, you know, would kind of make sense. He was, you know, he was and possibly is still the world's most famous Scottish actor. You know, is there any truth to that that you know of? Um, I don't think I've ever heard that. Um, of course, now I'm saying that, and maybe I mentioned it in the book, but I don't think I did. Um, so no, I, I think he would have just been a bit too old, really, mm. at that point. But uh, I, I think it could have been a, an interesting choice. Um, yeah, it would have been great to see Sean in, in more, as I say, just have him in more films made in Scotland and just more of these sort of fantasy or sci-fi films. Not that I think Zardoz is a particularly brilliant film. And- <laughs> Zardoz! Zardoz speaks to you. And uh, what's the other one he did? The Out, Out, Outland. Outland, yes. Uh, which, again, a lot of people love, but it wasn't quite for me. But but still, it would be nice to see him in more of that sort of those sort of films. Yeah. Um, so who was the liveliest person that you interviewed? Oh, the liveliest person. Um, well, I think Cam- Campbell Muirhead was a really interesting one. You mentioned him earlier as the stand-in. Yes. Uh, he had some amazing stories, and, and that's the sort of person I would never have thought would have such great stories, I suppose. Because, of course, there is the you, you're always led to believe, and, and people want to hear from the stars, which is great. I can totally understand it, and, I, of course, I do as well. I wanted to speak to Clancy, and I wanted to speak to um, Christopher and Roxanne, but... Uh, actually, it, it's sometimes these people like Campbell who were not the stars, but who maybe maybe were standing on the sidelines more and actually got to see a bit more of what was happening. Or you know, when the the the, the, the main stars were back in their their trailer, like Campbell were still walking around and they were meeting other people and getting up to mischief sometimes. So <laughs> I think I spoke to him for an hour, you know, maybe a couple of hours actually, and uh, just got all these amazing stories and. Uh, yeah, just heard what it was like to be in the same places because because he was the stand-in and, and the double for some of it. He was in the same places that Christopher Lambert was in. It's just that slightly different time. So he was he was fascinating and um, and just uh, just very funny as well, which is great. You want that sort of uh, that sort of humour and uh, yeah, just a fun take on. I suppose he he's kind of us really. He's the kind of me or you probably. You know, if we were somehow accidentally ended up <laughs> on, a, on a Hollywood film as a stand-in and you're just witnessing all this crazy stuff going on around you. Um, <laughs> he's, I think, what I would be like, probably. Just slightly bemused by it all and, and trying, to, trying to work it. What do I do? What, where do I stand? What, what, who, who should I be speaking to? Yeah, you just want to drink it all in. Well, he has that great anecdote about how he appropriated Sean Connery's rap party to be his birthday party or something like that. Yes. He says, oh, you, you did all this for me, you shouldn't have. <laughs> <laughs> That's right, yes. And he also mentioned about Christopher giving him some money in, a, in, a, in an envelope. And he said, I'll never tell anyone how much was in that envelope. Uh, and it's little things like that. And you think, oh, I wonder wonder what was happening there. How much how much did he get? And Yeah, I did. So so off offline, he didn't give you any clue as to how much it was. No, I didn't ask him. No. <laughs> no. I mean, there's sometimes with these interviews that people do say things that you never you don't use. Uh, it's very rarely, really, but sometimes someone will say something and you just think, oh, I don't want to get sued or I don't want them to get sued or I don't want people to, to misconstrue something or whatever. So sometimes there are little stories that just don't quite make it in. But, uh, but usually I try, I, I always, say to, always say to people, this is meant to be a celebration of a film. It's not meant to be a hatchet job or anything like that. There are those books out there and they're great fun, but for whatever reason, I just don't really... I don't know. I don't want to write those books or unless it was something really controversial. I mean, there are a couple of things in the book that I do touch on, like the the um, Fancy's sort of um, costume situation where he had a bit of a falling out with um, James Aitchison, I think it was, uh, which I do cover. And, and I think it was Aitchison that actually talked to me about it first and just said how unhappy he was because basically Clancy 
I don't know. I think you've you've got. To, I was listening to your one of your most recent episodes, and you're you're sort of in New York by now, and and the Kurgan yes. is now in the hotel, and that's what I was listening to anyway. So I think it's to do with um him sort of picking bits off his costume, him not quite liking the uh, the texture of it. That's it. So in his sort of 1980s costume with all the leather jacket and the bits on it, yeah, he started pulling things off it. And of course, James Aitchison, who'd spent a lot of time designing this costume and creating it, had a, had a few words with Clancy. And um, and that was a difficult one because James is still a little bit sore about that all these years later. In a way, that's incredible. But but I guess if you're there, then it's maybe not. But but I also I was not sure I wasn't sure if I should use that story until I spoke to Clancy, and then I could ask ask him. And he gave me his side of it, which was, he was a young man. He was in his 20s. He was, a, I think he says he was a bit disrespectful. And, you know, that's that's kind of interesting, I guess, hearing these stories all these years later and then being able to match them up. Again, this idea of, as I've said before, about matching up stories and trying to work out who's telling the truth. In this case, I had both sides of the story and they both were, as far as I know, telling the truth, both quite... Um, there were lots of high emotions, I think, at the time. So I'm glad that I got to sort of capture that and, and didn't just gloss over it and say, oh, you know, he was, James wasn't very happy, but let's not talk about it. So sometimes yeah, I, I you can do that. Yeah, I see. Yeah, I remember from reading that part of the book that um, that Clancy seems genuinely, we seem genuinely quite contrite about it and saying, oh, you know, I was completely wrong. He was completely right. And yeah, it seems like it seems like actually quite a nice little bit of like closure on a, on a bit of drama from a film, you know, <laughs> 35 years ago. That, um, totally. Yeah, and, and that's just a that's just a nice accident, I suppose, in a way, because um, that's not a story that I'd really read before. I don't think, uh, and it just sort of came out of these interviews. So, um, yeah, so it was nice to be able to do things like that. But but like I was also saying, that's not what I was looking for. And and actually, one of the people I interviewed was a little bit unsure about being interviewed because they said that um, they didn't want the fans to read negative stories in case it spoiled their enjoyment of the film, which I think is an interesting way to look at it. It's a nice way to look at it, I think. Um, yeah, so that was that person was, was, was in the book, but I think only one, I think maybe one person wanted to see the, the quotes first, you know, before I put them in the book and just to make sure that it was not sugar-coated or... or, or vanilla but but just that if there was anything that they said that was maybe a little bit controversial they wanted it toned down a bit just in case people mm. um as i say were yeah just thought differently of the film and if you're a fan and you you come to something because you love it to then constantly have people going yeah this was terrible and that person was horrible and the money was bad and the food was terrible and the weather was awful you might just come away thinking oh Hmm, okay, I, well, I enjoyed that film, but <laughs> now I'm not so sure if it was if it was if it was that good. So, yeah, it's rightly tarnished. Well, that's not that's not the case at all with the book because the book is a, a wonderful celebration. But what it does do really well is just get the the kind of the drama and the almost impossible odds sometimes to actually make this movie, and it does make you come away with I think with more of an appreciation for the film what they accomplished because. They had an okay budget, but they certainly made the most of it. That's that's true. Yeah, um, yeah. It wasn't the highest budget in the world, uh, but I think with they had such an amazing crew, and with Russell, just his vision, I suppose, just managed to carry them through it. Uh, and they were just very clever. I mean, I suppose before the days of CGI, they had to be inventive and creative, and they were kind of used to doing that. So they knew, I suppose, what might work. But with Russell's ideas being a little bit more out there, I suppose it was a real challenge to still to make some of those things work that maybe hadn't been tried before, like the, I think the indoor, the the sort of car park, uh, the the water streaming down, and the, and the when they were attacking the um, the sort of water pipes and things, and there was there was water everywhere and, and all these sorts of things. So it was that was a challenge. And yes, because I know I know you're talking about in the book that Jerry Fisher was very uncertain with that. And really didn't know if it was going to work until kind of he saw he saw the rushes and suddenly had the, the moment where he went okay maybe this Russell guy does actually know what he's doing maybe yeah uh... that's true yeah and I and I do wonder and again I don't think it really matters that much now after all these years but I wonder if that kind of I would love to have spoken to Jerry Fisher because I'm still not sure quite how bad it was between him and Russell um, I just sort of sense I think it's just from reading other things and. And maybe speaking to to people that maybe it was worse than than even we think it was, but we'll never really know unless someone really pushes Russell on it. 
uh, we'll never really know. But, but like I say, do we need to know that? Does it matter if they fell out more than once or they didn't speak to each other? Not really. It's, I mean, it's nice in a way. It's I suppose nice to see a little bit of reality, but uh, but no. But, but the, the fact is, they they did work together and they, they made this thing work. So so good on them. Yeah. One of the aspects of the book that I really like is how it kind of calls out unsung heroes um, on the film. Um, so there's the storyboard artist Joe Haydar who wasn't credited. Are there any other kind of great unsung heroes from Highlander that you don't you don't necessarily think have got their due? Hmm. I, I mean, I suppose a lot of them that I interview, people don't know their names. So I suppose in, in a way, the, the sort of cop-out answer in a way is is most of the people I interviewed because Campbell, Muirhead, nobody's heard of him. And I don't even think he's mentioned in the end titles. And, um, you know, Lois Burwell, the, the makeup lady. And, and I mean, one of the ones that, who I was amazed that I managed to get hold of was uh, Vincent Ginger Keen, who you, I think, have mentioned in the past, who did the backflips, hmm. um, who nobody, I don't think anyone knew that name until the book came out, because I didn't know it. Yeah. It was only through interviewing someone else who worked on the film that said, oh, by the way, my friend Vincent, or, or Ginger, I think he I think he called him, uh, did this these backflips that I was like, oh, who, who's that? So, yeah, people like him, who was always very low-key about his involvement as far as i can tell uh it was nice to, to, to sort of bring them to a wider audience i suppose um but yeah no really it was really just all these people that you you maybe saw their name going past in in those titles but didn't pay much attention to just be able to speak to them was great great so to go from that to someone that i think that people have heard of um so our friends would be very angry with us if we didn't ask how was christopher lambert when you talked to him he was lovely. Excellent. He was really, really nice. Uh, he's he's a difficult guy to get hold of, as is Russell Mackay. Russell, and I think I mentioned in this, this in the book, Russell Mackay took something like eighteen months, um, just because he just doesn't really. I don't think he uses email. He barely uses email, so that that was horrendously difficult. But when I got him, he was great. And it was a little bit the same with Christopher. Um, it took a lot of of toing and froing, and um, I went down to London to try and meet him the first time, I think it was, in 2016. That didn't happen, and I had to fly back <laughs> with, with nothing. Uh, and then again in Birmingham, I was hoping to speak to him, and that didn't happen. <laughs> um, so by the time I did speak to him, it was on a Sunday, I think, and I was on the couch. He was meant to phone me on the Saturday, and he didn't. And of course, his, his agent or his manager was was not in the office on a Saturday. So I assumed, okay, here we go again. It's not going to happen. And then I got a phone call on the Sunday. And there he was on the phone from, I saw it coming up, you know, France on my phone. And he, he spoke to me for an hour and a half. And he was lovely. Yeah. And I, and I said to him a couple of times, because I, like I mentioned with Clancy, I had kind of my set questions that I thought, okay, I want to try and ask these ones. And anything else is a bonus. And I think I ran out of those questions after about half an hour. And I said to him, okay, you've been great. You know, I don't want to keep you. And he said, no, I'm happy to keep talking. And then we talked for another hour. Wow. So, so yeah, that was great. And I think I had a cold at the time. So I just remember not feeling very good, but just, and the phone line was a little bit off just because it was, I don't know, to France, I suppose, and not the best phone line, but we managed to get through it. And, uh, and it was just me trying to ask him questions that no one, yeah, I, I think it's, it's almost impossible to ask questions of, of someone like Christopher Lambert that nobody's asked before because he's been asked everything. So I did really struggle to try and come up with something original uh, because I guess the default is to sort of fall back on stories that you've told a million times. So hopefully I got some new things that other people don't have uh, a little bit. I wanted to just try and get more into the what it was like being on set in Scotland and being in the battle, the battle sequence and, and also ask him some questions about things that other people had said to me about him and about things that happened on set that he might remember. So, um, so yeah, so I think it was quite a unique interview and hopefully fans, again, I, you know, I'm too close to it in many ways, but hopefully, I think for the reaction I've got and response, people seem to have, uh, yeah, just really enjoyed hearing from him and, and other people. Yeah. Say so when you're talking about, when he's talking about um, being in the lot, filming the, uh, the scene coming out of the water, and essentially, you know, they, only, they had a very limited number of takes because I think it's the way he puts it that, you know, after not too long, your brain basically shuts down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, that, that, well, that whole sequence there as well, uh, I, I think, I don't think it was a lot. 
because there were other people involved in that, um, I think it, I think back to the safety thing. It just wasn't the safest scene to be filming, and um, and I did speak to someone else. I'm being a little bit I'm being a little bit cagey just because again I don't want to mention people's names who maybe don't want to say things. But someone else did say something to me about being in that water, and being sort of left for a while to float about in the cold water, and it not being the safest and. Uh, yeah, there were. I think it, it. Yeah, what can I say? It was just not the safest of places to be, and and so I'm glad I got some of that story in there. Um, sorry, that doesn't sound like the most. Ex- that's a really. It's a letdown for you, to not you know, just saying things like that and not telling you. But no, it's, uh, no, it's all good. It's all good. <laughs> it's just that thing again of people who you speak to, and you're like, well, okay, I won't, I won't publish that. You know, when people say off the record, you have to really, um, of course. Uh, abide by that because otherwise no one's going to trust you so um so but i think that's that's the case with lots of things in this film there are things as i I mentioned earlier some things people just didn't tell you or the things they don't say you can actually think oh actually does that mean it was worse (laughs) (laughs) because you're not saying it well i think that christopher lambert earns all of his salary by walking out of the water not shivering because it looks freezing on screen and (laughs) that's some good acting I know. Yeah, he went. He went through a lot for that film. Good on him. So, um, so what were some of the big surprises that you uncovered during the research and also the writing of the book? Oh well, there were so many things really, and I suppose they they kind of blur a little bit because there were because so much of the because so much of the book was was taken from one you know one to one interviews and new interviews. There were lots of things that just weren't. Um, written down. I mean, that was one of the concerns I had when I started the book. I just thought there's not much point in doing this if I can't find new things. But because so much has been written about Islander, uh, I did worry that I couldn't find new things. So so there are things in there, I suppose, like the whole the David Yip saga, mm. which um, if people have not read the book, uh, and I don't know if you've got, I don't think you've maybe got to this in the, in the podcast yet, the scene... Mm that well no so yeah we are we're probably going to hold off till after we've done the main body of the film and kind of then delve a bit more into uh sort of deleted see what things things that aren't in the film sure well it's well i suppose it's a bit of a spoiler but then anyone that's listening to the podcast will will have seen the film i'm sure many times but anyway there was this whole sequence that the young doll kim sequence that you have maybe mentioned but that uh should have featured the Kurgan and this character called, called Young Doll Kim, and I won't I won't go into the whole detail here because we could be here for another half an hour just talking about this one sequence and what didn't didn't happen. But it was filmed. But the thing I found out was about this chap David Yip, who uh, is a an English actor, who one of the the crew is very clear and very um, emphatic that he, that David Yip was involved in the film, at least to have his body, like a body cast created. And, uh, and fired across <laughs> the street. Yeah, absolutely. So, so it, it, it's hard to believe that David Yip wasn't involved in this film, even if it was just for a few days, because someone, is, as I say, he said he was actually called David Yip, <laughs> as in his nickname was David Yip, because he looked a bit like him. <laughs> That's right. So I think he would, I like to think he would know what he's talking about, and he was actually there. So... But then David Jip, when I spoke to his agent, the agent said he he wasn't in Highlander. And I said, no, I know he wasn't in Highlander. I'm trying to find out why he wasn't in Highlander. <laughs> Which, again, is probably a bit of a strange question to ask why somebody isn't in a film. Uh, but I, I found that really, when you're just asking about surprising things, I just found that such a slightly bizarre situation to be trying to work out why someone who was probably on the set is saying that they weren't on the set and... Was he not on the set? Maybe the guy who said he was was wrong. I don't know if we'll ever know. But uh, but that that was certainly a, an interesting thing. Hmm. And um, oh, what else was a surprise? Um, I think that, I think a lot of the, the, these deleted scenes were were interesting to me to find out for reading the script. I suppose reading the script was interesting, and just reading about what had been cut out uh, and the whole yes. stuff with Bedso, which I know you, again you. You talked about recently. I listened to to that that episode, and you were talking about Bedso and being in the on the on the bridge, and and someone mentioned. I think one of your your guests mentioned the cyclists going across the bridge, 
And actually that was, I think, well, there are photos of Pedso nearly getting run over by the people on the, those bikes. So that was meant to tie into a deleted scene. And it was sort of a comedy moment, I suppose, with him nearly getting run over. <laughs> um, there's, um, I've been sort of doing some reading of the, uh, of the earlier scripts, and I think there's a moment, it might even be in the original Gregory Wyden script, um, that kind of, I think it even ends on the beat of um, Connor being in the vicinity of some civilians and the idea of like, you know, their lives are going on and they have no idea that they're in the presence of these immortals. And to me, though, these, the cyclists kind of sum that up, the fact they are cycling past these people who've been on Earth for hundreds of years and just have no idea of the fact. Yeah, no, that that's true. Uh, yeah, and there's just lots of little moments like that. And I guess the whole Castigier thing as well, I would love love to see more of Castigier in the film. But of course, he gets he gets sadly cut cut out a bit. So all those little bits were really interesting and, and surprising, I suppose, to read about because there aren't really too many details. I think on one of the old DVDs, maybe the 10th anniversary DVD, there's a little bit about these things. But um, but it's just really nice to be able to, to reveal them, I suppose, for fans. Yeah, I mean, one of the best things about the book is that it does go into the subplot that would have given, or the extra events that would have given the subplot with the cops a bit more closure because, of course, the film just kind of drops them. Um, Mm-hmm. And that whole ending of what they would have been doing is just really fascinating. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yes, and the whole romance subplot as well with Rachel. Yeah, which is a shame she didn't she didn't get that because I think. Uh, but this is the, this is the thing, isn't it? We watch we've we've all watched this film many times, and we know what's in the film, and it, and and I think it probably works. Like I watch it, and I'm I'm very happy with what's in there, mm. and then I think. Would, would it have been better if we'd seen more of her and if she'd had this sort of payoff to her story? Um, possibly. It's hard to know, isn't it? It might have spoiled it. Maybe we would have thought less of that character. But uh, but no, I think as a as a fan, as I say, it's it's just it's a really nice thing to know that it was should have been there, and it's nice to know that it was filmed and those photos do exist. The footage doesn't seem to exist. I mean, I've been. This is not really a. This is not a spoiler. I mean, I've I've been speaking to Davis Panzer over the last few years since the book came out, and did an event, one like a fan event online a year or so ago, mm. and they were they allowed me to show some photos from the deleted scenes over over Zoom. So you know, I didn't have access to those before I wrote the book because I think Davis Panzer was a little bit unsure about whether they could trust me or who I, they just didn't know who I was. So it's a shame I didn't really get to to use those in the book, but um, but now I've seen them and uh, yeah, I, I'd like hopefully one day everyone else will get to see all these these photos and uh, you know um, yeah photos I suppose from the scenes that I've talked about, but at the moment that's not looking like it's going to happen sadly. But one day I think it will. One day I'm sure it will. Yeah, well that's a good point about the yeah the film itself is I wouldn't change a frame of it. So the great thing about the book is that it's like it's just absolutely fascinating to read about what the thinking was of telling the story as the film was being made. Mm-hmm. And then when you get to the editing process, and of course there was lots of um, issues and things around that in terms of yeah you know, the American cut and the European cut and yeah. But yeah, just in terms of what the story was as they were shooting it and writing it, it's just really fascinating all that stuff in the book. Well, that's good. Thanks, thanks for saying that because when I was writing it, I wasn't sure how interesting it was because it some of it felt quite dry and uh you know sitting there for for hours <laughs> it felt like hours uh looking at old memos and well it was hours it didn't just feel like hours looking at old memos and uh, reading bits of the script and then writing about them and then thinking is this just really boring do people not care and then talking about the finance side of it and the marketing side of it near the end Again, I just wasn't sure. I thought, do people really want to know this, or do they just want to know how the you know how the the sparks came off the sword? Is that really what people want to know? <laughs> uh, and that's that's obviously the difficult thing that anyone has for doing anything. I suppose you just don't quite know if you're creating something, uh, whether it's a podcast or, or writing or, or a film. How much do you put in there before you lose the audience? So I'm glad that you found it interesting because I, I mean I I suppose I suppose at the end of the day I wrote this book. As much as I wanted people like yourselves to enjoy it, I wanted to enjoy it, I suppose. So I wrote it for myself, and I knew that I would find that interesting. Uh, and it's a bonus that everybody else does, I suppose. 
it's a long way of answering that one. There's even like a little bit of um, yeah, British film industry during the 80s there with Thorn EMI and the Canon Group coming in and taking over and that kind of stuff I just found absolutely fascinating as well. Um, yeah. Good. Well, that's, that's some of the stuff I was actually meaning that I thought might be too dry. And I, and I was, I think I cut a little bit out of that. But I do remember, yes, sitting right in that thinking, oh man, who knows how many people are going to go, really? Thorny am I? Uh, Canon? <laughs> but we're all film fans, of course. So I think for me, it, it was fascinating because it's going to put the film in context. It's not just a film that appeared from nowhere. There were people in, there were managers and managing directors and that guy, Simonon, I think his name was, who was the head of, was it head of marketing or was he the head of, uh, I think it was Thorny MI, who was apparently in his in his office <laughs> with a, a cutout, I think, of, of Christopher Lambert and he used to wave his sword around. I mean, I guess that is quite weird and, and he wouldn't get back to me. <laughs> Actually, I did, I, did, <laughs> I did approach him for an interview, but I never heard back. So, um, <laughs> yeah, all these, all these characters. And then, and then my hope is that when you watch another film that, that I've maybe mentioned or mentioned Thorny MI being in 1980, what was it, 1984, 85, like I mentioned Clockwise in there and Clockwise, the, the John Cleese film was on BritBox the other day. And I was watching some of that and thinking, oh, this was made around about the same time as Highlander. And although you don't need to know about what was happening at Thorne EMI, you now do. By accident, you've learned something. So I suppose that's what I'm trying to do is, is of course, just um, not, not in a big highfalutin way I'm educating people. But I just think as fi- film fans, I think it's great to, to just know that little bit more that you didn't before. And so the, the context is, yeah, the context is fascinating. And I think, yeah, there's, there's a whole book to be written about thorny mi and its influence on the, on the british on the british film industry at that point yeah and um there is actually and, um, there is actually a book oh, really out. yeah i quoted from it a little bit in my one so i think I'm, i maybe mention it in the in the references or the bibliography at the back but um i mean it's quite no offense at all to the author it's not like mine it's not chatty it's not interviewing people as such it's a bit more it's more of a reference book but there's lots of interesting stuff in there. So, read. Uh, and it's probably quite expensive as well from the library. You might get it from the library, though. Um, is it from Making to Music, History of Thorny MI? Probably. Yes, that's probably the one. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah. So what has the response to the book been since it was published? Just really good. Just, <laughs> just really positive. <laughs> yeah. Thankfully. <laughs> I mean, I've not had <laughs> any hate mail or anything. And... Um, I mean, I mentioned about Davis Panzer, who Peter Davis, the who when I started writing the book, he was the surviving producer out of him and Bill Panzer. He, I think, I mean, I did try and speak to him for the book, um, Peter Davis, and I spoke to him for maybe five minutes. I don't think I mentioned this in the book, just because he was alive at the time and I didn't want to, uh, well, it wasn't going to offend anybody, but... But when I spoke to him over the phone, he, he really, he was the only person, and this is a businessman, you know, you read the book and I think you get the sense he was a money guy. Fair enough. It's a, it's a film industry. People, it's a film business. People have to make money. So when I spoke to him on the phone about five years ago, he said, how much are you going to pay me for this interview? <laughs> and one of the great things, I suppose, about interviewing people for, for books and, and things, most of the time is they, they don't ask for money. Um... That's just, I suppose, the way that the, the, the system is. It's like like journalism. You know, when you interview someone for a newspaper, they tend not to get paid for it. Um, so when he said that, I, I, I had no money, you know, <laughs> and I still don't have any money. Uh, and so I had to sort of just leave that interview to one side. But sadly, he has now passed away. He died, um, now was it a year ago? I can't quite remember the timeline. But I know from one of his colleagues that he did... He never read the book, but I know that he, that, that his colleague did read it and said, you know, this is a, this is kind of an affectionate book. It's not meant to. It doesn't say. It doesn't put you in a bad light, which is what, again wasn't my intention to put anyone in a bad light. So I know that he knew about the book, and 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 I think from what I gather, well, I know that he was trying to put things. So this sounds a little bit like quantum leap. He was trying to put things right that that had gone wrong, uh, because through the book there are various allusions to the fact that because it was a business and because there were there were some tough decisions made on set and, and around the set when it came to money. Of course, Clancy Brown talks about that. <laughs> um, and I think probably Peter thought that there was a good chance that I was maybe going to bring some of those up and be 
a bit harsher than I was. Uh, and I know that he was trying to maybe, as I say, put things right with people that maybe he had offended in the past or that felt offended. I hope that's, I don't think that's um, speaking too, you know, too out of school. But, uh, and so, yeah, so sadly he died. And, and, and I like to think maybe I would have got a chance to speak to him actually if, if he hadn't sadly passed away, just because of, you know, maybe doing a paperback and maybe he would have felt actually I, I wasn't doing a hatchet job. But it, did, it didn't happen, sadly. So, so it has been nice, though, just sort of making contact with the guys at Davis Panzer and just knowing how much you know. We watch the the sequels and the the things that happen, the things that we see on the internet and read stories about um, reboots and remakes and things, and and people kind of guess what's happening. And just knowing how much passion and love they have for the franchise is really heartening. And knowing that a lot of the decisions that are made are for the fans. I sound like I'm being paid by them to say that, but huh. uh, but no, it's just getting to know people, and a lot of it's just over, you know, emails and things, and and so so that's been really nice, I suppose, just getting that feedback that that the the company, you know, the the company that that sort of half owns Highlander, because Studio Canal really sort of own it, but it's sort of a joint thing. Um, but the fact that they are behind it, I suppose, is really nice, and 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 I've I've tweeted about it, and I've put things out to say you know maybe buy this book if you want to that's really nice um and not something that i ever planned or you could you could plan for so what are your i think i think it's a good point to ask what are your honest thoughts on highlander 2 the quickening my honest thoughts um well it's a film i keep trying to like uh i I do i keep trying i've watched it a few times now and i watched it again maybe i don't know a year ago year and a half ago thinking, okay, this time, let's try it. Let's just put everything out of my mind that I know about this film and try again. And it just never really works for me. So I don't hate it. I just I just think it's a, it's a sad... It's sad that it was what it was and that it wasn't better. And um, I will watch it again, I'm sure, because it is part of the universe. But, yeah, just it, it wasn't as good as it should have been. And um, it's nice to have Sean back. And it does look incredible. But yeah, it's not for me. I know I'm not. Maybe I, that's not. I, I don't know if that's a good answer or not. But I'm not. I'm not a fan. It's a fair answer. You mentioned actually in the book that there was a. Um, I think it's a, what you described it as a hastily aborted science fiction approach to Highlander, in what I think might have been the initial draft by um, Bellwood and Ferguson, and was like, was that kind of more in the vein of Highlander? Highlander two. I don't know. They wouldn't tell me. They they. Uh, I think I mentioned. I maybe say something about one of them. One of the one of the guys. I, I spoke to them both at the same time, and I think one of them just started talking about science fiction, and the other one said, "No, no, no, we don't need to talk about that." So <laughs> that's where that conversation ended, or that part of it. So sadly, I don't know. Um, but uh, yeah, it's that science fiction thing, isn't it? It's just yeah, <laughs> it's, it's weird. It's all just weird. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I, I love in many ways. I do. I, I do love the fact there are all these Highlander films. I think it is it is quite a cool thing. But on, on the other hand, I just wish there was one. It's it's that weird thing of. <laughs> I, but but there's also yeah. I was going to talk about the sequel actually, or the reboot that's being talked about. But that's a whole other thing. So please do. No, please. Yeah. I mean, if it, yeah. Be... Well, no. I was just going to say something about. There's still. Like any time there's a remake or reboot, fans tend to have there's there's sort of a a dividing line, isn't there? People saying it should never be remade, and then of course there's people who say no, it's fine. And I'm on that it's fine side because the original always exists. So that's all I was going to say was um, just let it if it if and when it happens, then hopefully it'll be good. <laughs> and if it's not, well, we've still got the original. And if it's brilliant, then we're lucky. So. Um, which is just you know thankful for what we've got, I think. Yeah. Mm. Well, I'd say um, if if they choose to go the uh, the literal route and sort of do a remake with Ramirez, etc., we're uh, we're pushing for um, for fellow Bond uh, Pierce Brosnan as Ramirez. We think you know he 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 should definitely be a Celt. Absolutely, and and he looks incredible these days. When you see photos of him on his Instagram with the the beard and the sort of grey hair or the white hair, yeah, he's just uh, yeah he is yeah he's got that Sean Connery thing, isn't it, with aging gracefully i suppose and probably looking almost better than he did or certainly the same 
in, in many ways. He still looks incredible, I suppose is what I'm trying to say. So, yeah, I think it would be fantastic to see him as Ramirez. That's a great idea. <laughs> so I think it's, um, Rob, is there anything else to ask or should we let John go because we've had him for a while? <laughs> I don't know. I think that's, uh, I think that we've kind of worked through the question list. Well, one of the ones that um, I was going to ask you to finish off, there's actually two. Um, but one of the questions that we were going to ask was, um, so any of the films that you'd like to give the full book treatment to, which you're doing already? Is it okay to talk about your next book? Oh, the next book, yes. Uh, so the next book I'm doing is Local Hero, which is very, very different to Highlander. Uh, but, uh, and it's not just the fact that I'm Scottish and I'm in Scotland. That's, I suppose that's a big part of it, but uh, it's just a film. I mean, I, I write books about films that I enjoy and that I want to know more about, and Local Hero just happens to be one of them. So, yeah, so that's the one I'm working on just now. Um, it's due, hopefully, going to be out in maybe September, maybe October this year, uh, although I haven't quite finished it as we're <laughs> as we're talking <laughs> and we're only a few months away but i think it'll it'll happen uh so yeah so i'm just i'm sort of doing this a similar thing although this one because I, I won't go on at great length about it because this is not a local hero podcast but but i was a little bit concerned actually after i'd started it i'll be honest and say you know uh, local hero was filmed in in houston texas for about a week and then it was filmed in the west coast of scotland for four weeks and then the sort of northeast of Scotland for another four weeks. And that was all. And it was a very calm, very enjoyable production. And people didn't really seem to fall out. <laughs> there were no stunts. There were no explosions. Uh, and so I did have a little bit of a concern about how do you make this interesting when you're not telling a globe-trotting story about the, like Highlander? So, um, so, I mean, people will have to tell me when they read it if, if I managed to get it right but it's a it's basically a scene by scene of the film including lots and lots of interviews so I've managed to speak to a lot of the people that were there behind the scenes again just like Highlander I did say this time I was going to speak to fewer people uh, and there's definitely fewer people than than with Highlander but some really interesting people and one of the last interviews I did was with Peter Wiegert who's a star and he spoke to me for two and a half hours which is incredible <laughs> so uh, I think I got about 10,000 words for the book just out of him alone, which is amazing. Wow. <laughs> and it's, uh, well, it is one of the best films of the 80s, much like Highlander. Absolutely. So, um, so yeah, it'll be absolutely fascinating to read that one too. Yeah, I hope so. Well, I hope so. I think, again, I've found lots of new things that, that people don't know about. And I, and I found the script for that as well. I didn't just find it. It wasn't lying around, but I, but I managed to access the script with Bill Forsyth's comments and notes on it scribbled in the in the margins. So I think that'll be... There's lots of deleted scenes that didn't make it to the film, so hopefully people will find something interesting in those as well. Okay, Rob, what is the, what's our last question? Ah, oh, yes, because um, yes, I did say two, didn't I? <laughs> so, John, do you have any final thoughts on why Highlander still captures the imagination of millions of fans decades after release? Oh, do I? I've got, I suppose... I mean, I can really, I, I can talk for myself. And the thing that, there's a few things that stand out for me and make it work. And, but I suppose the main one for me is that is that love story between Connor and Heather. And for me, that's the thing that really grounds the film. So as we've, we've mentioned about how it's a crazy sci-fi fantasy uh, action romance type thing, but... At the end of the day, the, the the main focus is this romance and this love story, and I just I still find it kind of in, well, maybe not maybe incredible is too too much, but I find it um, I don't know. I love the fact that that at the heart of all this, as I say, is are just these this couple who loved each other, and he just lived too long, and she died because she was old, and I just that whenever I watch it, that is a really beautiful moment. And even though the makeup, which I go into in the book about how, why the makeup wasn't great and it doesn't look amazing, I, I can sort of forget about that. And I, I can forget about the the fact, you know, the stuff that went on behind the scenes and just watch that as a as a moment between this this couple uh, and and just believe it. So that for me, I suppose, is is why I think it lasts. And and all the other stuff is a real bonus. The the action and the comedy and the that sort of it's a you know it's a time travel film but it isn't because nobody actually time travels it's just that we see we see them as if they time travel because we see them in the past and the present i love time travel films um so no i suppose yeah that's that's for me is why 
and and I suppose it's just that that combination that we've talked about a few times now, and I'll, I'll say once again, just that, what is it? What is it? Is it is it an action film or is it a sci-fi? Is it a comedy? Uh, different people, I guess. Different people must must like different things. I'm I'm gonna guess at that anyway. <laughs> um, different people approach it from different angles and love different aspects of it. Hope that that, that sort of answers the question. Yeah, I think there's there's definitely something in there for everyone. I think you have to have a heart of stone to not to not walk away with something. Yeah, fantastic. Yes, totally. Can I be? I know I'm throwing this back at you, but out of interest, what are your favourite bits? <laughs> you know, what 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 makes it last for you? I suppose and be rewatchable. Well, speaking for me, it was because uh, when I mentioned it on the podcast when we first started doing this, it was I really love movies during the eighties. I still do, but I love movies during the eighties and. Just the marketing of Highlander was such that I hadn't even heard of it until my mum came home on Saturday afternoon with a video because her friend had recommended it at work. And we watched it as a family. And um, apart from the sex scene, which was a bit awkward because I was a kid, but um, yeah, but apart from that, this was like just this amazing, really imaginative fantasy story that was just doing the most amazing flashbacks and flash forwards. And I don't think I'd really seen a film at that point that had told the story that way. So that level just completely blew my mind. Plus it was, you know, the battle sequences in the Highlands were just so cool. And intercutting it with American wrestling just really worked for me, even though, of course, it was supposed to be a hockey match. Um, It's only really more recently that it's actually uh, moved over to what you were saying. And that scene with Heather and Connor, um, the final scene with her, yeah, yeah, that is my favourite scene of the film now. It's just so, so beautifully played. It shouldn't work, but it just, you know, rips your heart out. My beautiful man. My husband. I am that, my love. Yeah, and for me, it was, um, well, Highlander was one of the very first films I had on VHS. I think it was, uh, we picked it up from like an, it was like ex-rental. And, um, you know, got out of a bargain bin, took it home. Popped it on, you know, not, not really knowing very much about it at all. I think I really like the key art on it, the other uh, poster art. And just popping it on, and all of a sudden there's this booming, you know, Princes of the Universe. Here we are, you know, it's wrestling, fighting in an underground parking garage. There's a decapitation, transition up to Scotland. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, and, you know, I would have probably been about, yeah, maybe very, probably maybe very early teens. And yeah, just getting absolutely swept away on this thing. And the fact that, you know, you've got scenes with Christopher Lambert, who's, you know, French, and is doing his best to kind of mediate his French accent, playing the Highlander, versus scenes with Sean Connery as an Egyptian who's doing nothing to mediate his Scottish accent. (laughs) It's such a, yeah, it's such a witch's brew of a film. It swings big, and a lot of the swings land. So it's, yeah, it's just, it's it's an audacious film, I think, on, on every level. And... Yeah, coming to it at the point I did, I think was absolutely perfect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that's that's those are great answers, and um, yeah, and I think it's obviously just with other people, it must just be a combination of those things and and, and just different different bits that everyone brings to it and their own stories. So yeah, no, it's a fascinating film. I'm glad I'm glad you're doing this podcast because it is uh, it is great to just be able to, as someone who's writing this scene by scene of uh, local hero. It can be difficult to sort of go into the detail of each one, but I think you do it brilliantly. So, so well done with that, and I'm looking forward to hearing the rest oh. of them. No, thank you very much. Oh, thank you. That's really, really kind of you to say. And yeah, we're um we're enjoying it tremendously. So um, yeah, so it's a film that does actually seem to reward this. You know, listeners may disagree, <laughs> but seems to really reward this scene by scene level because every single scene, no matter how you know narratively throwaway it seems, has something going on. So, yeah, well, John, thank you very much for coming on. Thank you. Thanks again for asking me. It's been a, a pleasure. Uh, and uh, and I should just also say the, the, the paperback of the book we're hoping will be out probably about September time this year. So um, there might be some different photos in there as well. It's not definite yet, but there might be some ones that people have not uh, seen before. Fingers crossed. Fantastic. Well, I think, yeah, absolutely anybody who's listening to this definitely needs to. If you haven't already, definitely needs to pick themselves up a copy. Yeah. Because, yeah, it's uh, it's a f- absolutely fantastic behind the scenes making of the, yeah, I'd say this, this podcast would be far poorer without the, the kind of wealth of information contained within. Yes, that's, uh, that is true. Um, we always try to credit, though, so. Um. <laughs> yeah, we do.
No, you do. Yeah, no, I've, I've, I've heard you mentioning my name. It's interesting being your name being mentioned sometimes when you're not there. So <laughs> that's good, though. That's great. I, long, long may it last. Thank you. Well, so, uh, John, if, if people are looking for you online, where can they find you? Uh, the best place is probably just on Twitter, I suspect, just because I'm there most, you know, every day at least for, for a little while. So um, John, J-O-N underscore Melville, which is M-E-L-V-I-L-L-E. But I'm sure people will see it in the in the notes or whatever of the podcast. But yeah, that's probably a good place. Great. And uh, how about you, Mr. Daniel? Um, yeah, if you want to follow me on Twitter, I'm at Rob underscore A underscore Daniel. Um, and if you want to listen to Rob and I talk about film more generally, then you can do that over at the Movie Robcast, which you can listen to wherever you listen to this, and is also on Twitter, at Movie Robcast. And uh, yeah, if you want to find me online, you can do so on Twitter, at Robert M. Wallace. You can also find my writing, such as it is, uh, limited at the moment, at of all the film sites, www.ofallthefilmsites.com. Uh, if you want to follow this podcast, the one you are listening to right now, we're at another. We're at McLeod Time on Twitter. You can also drop us an email at um, who wants to pod forever at gmail.com. If you have any thoughts or or feedback or a Highlander anecdote you'd like to share, um, yeah, it'd be great to hear from you. Also, you know, the standard. Please do rate and review whether or not you've enjoyed. It's always good to uh, always good to have the feedback, and it does really help drive the inexorable algorithm. So. Um, Again, John, thank you. It's been it's been a delight. Thank you. Thanks for thanks again for asking me. It's been it's been good fun. Cheers. And uh, and uh, yeah, well, thank you, Rob. Thank you very much. And John, we get most of our guests to do, and it's by no means obligatory, uh, having a go at the, uh, the the cry of another time, McLeod. <laughs> uh, okay, I can have a go at that. Just just have a go at it. Just now. Yeah, go go. However you feel. Um, another time, McLeod. Got it. That was forceful. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant.